Good morning. You can open up your scriptures to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And if you would uh, read along with me, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his, his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Dear Father God, I just pray that you're with us this morning, Lord, as we examine your word, God. I pray that this is an act of worship, Lord, as we um, just come together as a, as a church, Lord. Open up your word and, and hear what you have to say to us, Lord. Help us, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, be encouraged this morning to be challenged, to really examine what it means that you are love. Just pray that you're with us, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. God is love. This one phrase here is uh, in chapter 4 twice. You see it in uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, which says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And if you look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us, God is love. Next to John 3.16, which is talking about the love of God also, this is probably the most quoted phrase in all of Scripture. God is love. I also believe it's probably one of the most abused phrases in all of Scripture. Both Christians and non-Christians alike. How is it abused? Well, people take their cultural understanding of the word love— Right, what they, they know from the culture, not necessarily the biblical concept of love, and pour that meaning into this phrase when it says, God is love. And in doing that, they completely misinterpret what love means and what it means that God is love. You're going to hear me say this over and over, and I've said it I don't know how many times now, but um, it's a phrase that you'll probably get sick of at some point. Um, You can't understand the love of God unless you start with the holiness of God. You can't understand the love of God unless you start with the holiness of God. So today I'd really like to examine what does it mean that God is love. And I'd like to do that by looking at actually a different passage. And if you would, stick a a bookmarker or a pen or something in 1 John Because we're going to go back and forth to this other passage, and I just want you guys to be able to go back and forth very quickly. So stick something in there in 1 John chapter 4, and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. The title of the sermon is, is called The Love of the Father, and if you're familiar with Scripture, you might be wondering, what does 
Genesis chapter 22 have to do with the love of God? What does the sacrifice of Isaac, what's that have to do with the love of God? If anything, this passage has been used by unbelievers and skeptics to discredit God's love, to argue that the the God, at least in the Old Testament, and I want to be clear, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, but skeptics and, and unbelievers have have argued that the God of the Old Testament, using this passage, is unloving, a tyrant, right? unpredictable. This passage has been used throughout the history of the church to really smear the character of God. Even many faithful Christians throughout the history of church, and I would uh, dare to say that there's probably some in this, this room right now that have struggled with this passage. How could God ask one of his followers to sacrifice his child. I mean, that's what pagan gods did, right? Horrific pagan practices throughout the history of mankind. This is what one historian said about child sacrifices. The horrific practice of child sacrifices has been committed throughout the world for thousands of years. Generally, the sacrifice of a child was intertwined with the worship of a pagan deity, often a fertility god. Ancient Aztecs in South and Central America practiced child sacrifice. The same for the ancient ancestors of Europe. The city of uh, uh, Carthage in North Africa contains evidence of child sacrifices related to the worship of Baal, a god imported from Phoenicia. The Bible contains the heartbreaking tale of child sacrifice practiced in the name of Molech, a god of the Amorites and the Canaanites. Images of Molech were made of bronze, and their outstretched arms were heated red hot, and living children were then placed on the idol's hands to be burned to death. Horrific practices. So much so that these uh, practices, this was before Israel came into the promised land, were done near Jerusalem in Hinnom Valley, and because of this, when the Israelites took over the land, they, they would use that valley for their trash, because they said the, the practices that were done there were too horrific, too unholy to be used for anything else. Child sacrifices, I believe, is one of the clearest pictures of the depravity of man. I mean, think about that. Throughout human histories, we've worshipped gods that we've made up, right? That human beings have made up that demand the sacrifice of children. The most innocent. But here's where Genesis 22 is confusing. Right? Because the Christian God is supposed to be different. In fact, Leviticus 20 tells us that God commands Israel to stone anyone that's associated with, with child sacrifices. And if, if, if Israel didn't do that, God promises destruction. That's why Genesis 22 seems so out of place. So read along with me. Look at, look at Genesis 22, verse 1. And these things... God test, or after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, how could God ask Abraham to do this? How could the God, the God of love, Ask one of his followers to sacrifice his child. 
This is a question I'd like to examine this morning. But before we even get there, we really kind of know the context of the story, which I'm sure most of us are familiar with it, but, but I think it would be important to go through the history of Abraham before Isaac was even born. Starting in Genesis 12.1, which says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, that was Abraham before his name changed to Abraham, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I'll show you. God goes to this man, Abram, who becomes Abraham, and says, Leave everything. Leave your family, leave your wealth, leave everything, and just trust me and go, and I'll show you a land. And Abram did that, right? Abraham followed God, an amazing faith, amazing trust of God. But this is what God promised if Abraham would follow him. Verse 2 says this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right? This is the promise. God says, Abram, you leave, you go, you follow me, and here's a promise. Right? You will have a son, and that son will become a great nation. And that nation will have a land, and that nation will bless every nation on the earth. But as you follow the story of Abraham, there's one big problem. No son. Abraham is getting older and older, and his wife Sarah is barren. They have no children. And for the promise to come true, the promise that God gave him, they needed a son. So we find out later in the story, God fulfills his promise and gives them a son, Isaac, in a miraculous way. Sarah, who was barren in her old age, becomes pregnant. And that's the end of the story, right? Abraham gets what he wants from God, everyone's happy, and of course not. We get to Genesis 22, verse 1, and it's almost shocking. Look at verse 1, it says this, After these sayings, God tested Abraham. And said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I should tell you. What? Can you imagine? Let me try to help you out in imagining this because we don't, we, don't, we don't live in a culture that does sacrifices, so we don't have a visual of this. Right? A burnt offering is taking a lamb and slaughtering it with a knife and then burning that lamb. Why would God ask Abraham to do something like that to his child? Well, I have three reasons, and we're not going to be able to examine these. We could spend so much time on this passage. There's one of the reasons I really want to dig into, but let me give you three reasons. The first reason was this. It was a test. It was a test, and that's clear right away before the narrative can even get started. The author wants us to know that this was a test. In other words, God was never going to let Isaac be sacrificed. God tested Abraham, and the test was this. Do you love me more than your son, Abraham? Do you love me more than the promise that I promised you. Will you obey me, Abraham, no matter what the cost? Do you trust me? Am I trustworthy? More could be said here, but, but the second reason that God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac was for Abraham's own good. For Abraham's own good. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this, Take your son, 
your only son Isaac, whom you love. You learn in the narrative of, of Abraham that this desire to have this son and the desire to have this promise gets stronger and stronger and stronger to the point that Abraham's son and this promise was becoming his ultimate joy and his ultimate desire. Abraham was tempted to love God's good gifts, Isaac and this promise, more than God himself. In other words, Isaac and this promise that God gave Abraham was becoming an idol. And God wasn't going to let Abraham fall into idolatry. Again, more could be said on this, but, I, but I'd really like to spend uh, the majority of our time this morning on the third, third reason why God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And the third reason is this. Because of God's character. Because of God's character. This is where I'd like to focus our attention this morning. And to give a cultural insight, because the culture of Abraham's day and biblical times is so much different than our culture. Families in, in, in the biblical uh, times, in Abraham's times, was more in a communal sense than us. We we're so individualistic in our culture that we don't quite understand. In, in Abraham's culture, you were who your family was. You were who your family was. In other words, your honor, your shame, your wealth, everything came from who you, you, your family is. And the head of that family was the father, and that headship was passed down to the firstborn son. That's why the firstborn son throughout scriptures are so important. Right? The firstborn son represented the future of the family, the hope of the family. One commentator actually talking about the Passover, remember the Passover, the judgment on Egypt, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. Well, why is that? One commentator said this about this. When God brought judgment on Egypt, his ultimate punishment was taking the lives of their firstborn. Their firstborn lives were lost because of the sins of the families and, of the, and the nation. Why? Because the firstborn son was the family. So when God told the Israelites that the firstborn's life belonged to him unless ransom, he was saying in the most vivid way possible in those cultures that every family on earth owed a debt to eternal judgment, the debt of sin. In other words, the penalty for the family's sins was the death of the firstborn son. Because the firstborn son was the family, was the hope of the family, was the, was the future of the family, and the wages of sin is death. Listen, I believe Abraham knew this. Right? We don't see Abraham questioning God when he gets his command. He just acts. I think he understood God's justice, that, that, that God's justice demanded a payment for the family's sins, that Isaac's life was the future hope of that family. But here's the other thing. I believe Abraham also understood the mercy of God. And somehow, God was going to save not only his family, but save his firstborn son, Isaac. Abraham was actually caught in a dilemma that you see throughout the whole Old Testament. I've talked about this before. Really understand the Old, uh, Old Testament. You have to understand that there's this tension in the character of God. That God is both a hundred percent holy, just, and wrathful. He will not let sin go unpunished. Yet at the same time, 
the Old Testament says that God is 100% merciful and loving. The Old Testament claims both of these things about God. And it really doesn't tell you how, how these things go together. It just says that God is holy and God is merciful. Right? God, God is a God of wrath and God is loving. It's a great mystery in the Old Testament. For Abraham, he knew this. His family's sins needed to be paid for. Right? God is holy and just. But he also knew that God was merciful and loving and somehow would save his family, somehow would save Isaac. He actually had a guess. He had a guess of how this was going to work out. We don't really find out this guess until the New Testament. Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 says this, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, Abraham's guess was this. God's judgment, or God's justice, demanded the death of Isaac for the payment of the family's sins, but God's mercy would raise Isaac from the dead. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Right? Abraham was confident that God was going to save Isaac. He was confident that God was going to save Isaac. Look at verse 3 again. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. In other words, God told Abraham to, to offer his son Isaac up. And it was a three-day journey before he saw where this was supposed to take place. Can you imagine? Three days being with your beloved son as a father. Quality father-son time traveling. If you're a dad this morning, just could you imagine? The author writes this in, the way, in a way that, that I really feel like the author invites us to put ourselves in the story. How could a loving dad kill, sacrifice his son? And in such a horrific way, too. I want you to hold on to this question and remember this question. I want you to feel that tension this morning because the author wants us to feel that tension, right? Feel the emotion. Look at verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. This is a key verse in all of the, this passage this morning. It's key because it says this. It says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That word come again in Hebrew is plural. Meaning we will come again to you. Me and Isaac will go and worship and do the sacrifice. And, and me and Isaac will be back. We will come again to you. In other words, Abraham is confident through this whole passage that God was going to save Isaac. Look at verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. 
So they went, both of them, together, and Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knew exactly what they were doing. They obviously have gone and worshipped and have done sacrifices as a family together before. This was not unusual. He's seen this process the only unusual thing is that there's no lamb this time. And so, so Isaac asked, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Look at verse 8. So Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. God will provide the lamb. Right? This is the lamb that will take away the sins of the family, that will satisfy God's holy, just wrath. The lamb that would be the payment for the family's sins. Like, I don't know if Abraham was thinking Isaac or another lamb at this point. But what is clear is that Abraham 100% trusted God, that he would provide, that he would save his son somehow. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11. But then the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now I know that you fear God. What's that mean? What's, what's this mean? It means this. Abraham can truly say, because I have God, I can live without anything. You can also say, I have complete trust in the Lord. But it also means this, that God can say this about Abraham. Now I know that you love me because you are willing to sacrifice your one and only son. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. What was caught in the thicket? Verse 13, you can say it out loud. A ram, right? Look at verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. There was a ram caught in the thicket. It just is what I think. This is a guess on my part. I don't think the ram was the lamb. The ram isn't the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb that would be provided. Jesus truly paid the sins of Abraham's family. The, the ram only pointed to the true lamb of God, Jesus. This is why John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in John chapter 1, verse 29. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the penalty of sin. Jesus took the place of Isaac to save Isaac, to save Abraham, to save Abraham's family. The ram 
And all the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament saved no one. They only pointed to Jesus, the true sacrifice. Look at verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I mean, that's an amazing story, right? But what's this have to do with the love of God? Remember, that's where we started this morning. That's why I wanted to look at this passage. Look again at verse 12. He, this is God, right, said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is what God told Abraham. Now I know that you fear me. Now, Now I know that you love me. Because you haven't withheld your son, your only son, from me. Turn back to 1 John 4, 8. Right, and keep a bookmark, and we're going to get right back in Genesis chapter 22. So, 1 John 4, 8. Right, this is where we see the phrase, where we see the phrase, God is love. That, 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 that phrase that I believe has been abused by so many. What does love mean? The very end of verse 8 says, God is love. Verse 9 says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now look at verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Look, God could say to Abraham, now I know that you fear me, seeing how you have not withheld your your son, your only son from me. We can say to God, now I know how much you love us, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from us. But instead you sent him as atoning sacrifice for our sins. I wonder if John had the story in Genesis 22 in his mind when he wrote 1 John. I really believe Paul did when he wrote Romans 8, verse 31, which says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let that, that just sink in for a second. Remember when I asked you dads? How could a dad sacrifice his own son? God did. For you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, 1 John says that, that, that God is light. It says in chapter 2 that God is righteous. Meaning, God is holy. And that means God is not going to sacrifice his justice. Sin will be paid for. But here's the good news. God is also love. And out of his love, he was willing to sacrifice his one and only son. God is love. Look at 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But this leads to another question that I think is fair to ask. In Genesis chapter 22 again, what about Isaac? I mean, think about this poor kid, right? I mean, what was he thinking? I mean, what type of therapy is he going to need? I mean, he's seen sacrifices before. It's, it's clear in this passage. He asks his dad, where's the lamb? I know what we're doing. I've seen this before, right? In other words, he's seen his dad tie up a lamb and, and slaughter it. And if, if he did what is commanded to the Israelites, he probably slit the throat and let the bl- blood drain out. This was, the sacrifices were purposely bloody so that we know sin is a big deal. And then burned the meat. Like, Isaac has seen all of this. Can you imagine what he thought as his dad tied him up and raised the knife to kill him? How confused this kid must have been. Well, there's an interesting verse that I think brings insight, and it's back in chapter, Genesis chapter 22. So why don't you guys turn back there and look at verse 5. Genesis chapter 22. Again, put your bookmarker in. First John will be back there in a second. Genesis chapter 22, verse 5 says this. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Then verse 6 says this. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Why did Abraham lay the wood on Isaac's back? Here's why. Isaac wasn't a little boy. He was a strong young man. If you look at the timeline of Genesis, most theologians think that Isaac was probably at least, this is what most theologians I've looked up, at least in his 20s. Look at verse 5 again. It says this, Then Abraham said to the young men, and then later on it says this, I am the boy. You know what's interesting about that? It's the same Hebrew word, young men and boy. It can mean boy or a young man. I am the young man. Think about this. Abraham was well over 100 years at this point, right? He was old when Isaac was born. The wood for a sacrifice would have been heavy, and the sacrifice was on top of a mountain. Right? We learned that in verse 1. So in other words, it was a hike with a heavy load, which made sense. Isaac to carry the wood because he was a lot stronger than his dad, who was old. He would carry the wood. He would carry the heavy load. Why is this a big deal? Well, look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Here's my question. How did a hundred-year-old, over a hundred-year-old man bind a 20-year-old strong Isaac. This is how. Isaac led him. Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Isaac carried the wood to his own sacrifice. He let his dad bind him. He was a willing sacrifice, and this typifies, this, this points to, Isaac is a type of Christ. 
who also was a willing sacrifice. I mean, think about this. Jesus, just like Isaac, right? Isaac, who carried the wood to his own sacrifice, Jesus carried the cross to his crucifixion. A willing sacrifice. Isaac, right? Who trusted his dad and let his dad bind him. Jesus trusted his father and went to the cross saying, not my will be done, but yours. This is the God we worship. It's not like the pagan gods who demand us sacrifice our children. God the Father sacrificed his son so that we may live. God the Son was a willing sacrifice, just like Isaac, right, who had the power at any point to stop what was happening. Right? And Jesus made that clear. Matthew 26, 53 says this, Do you think I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? In other words, when he's getting arrested, he says, I could send 12 legions of angels and stop all of this. But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, how will you guys be saved if I don't go to the cross? Or John 18, 4 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, in other words, these men are coming to arrest Jesus, and it's, it's not like the movies. There are probably 100, 200, 300 men, right? Roman soldiers that were coming to Jesus to arrest him. Not 12, not 20. Jesus, knowing what would happen to him as these men come to arrest him, came forward and said, who do you seek? In verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus told them, I am. I know your translations say, I am he, but it's ego and me. It means I am. Judas, who betrayed him, standing with them, while Jesus said to them, I am. As soon as he said, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground. This whole army fell to their faces. And Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. And Jesus even said that, John 10, 18. No one takes it, talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus was a willing sacrifice with the power to stop it at any moment. But he didn't. Why? Why did Jesus lay down his life? Well, he tells us, John 15, 13. Greater love, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. Listen, God is love. And this is not some cheap love, the love that we see out in our culture, the the idea of love that we have in, in our culture, which is more about tolerance and not really love whatsoever. God doesn't just tolerate us. God actively loves us. God's love is an acting love. God's love is a truthful love. God's love is a holy love. God's love is a sacrificial love. God's love is a costly love. It costs the Father his only son. It costs his son his life. That's what the Bible means when it says, God is love. God's love is at the heart of the gospel. This is why I get so irritated when I hear people say, God is love, and they give something other than the gospel. God is love, and we see the love of God at the cross. 
Let me end with this today, because what do we do with this truth, right? I mean, I know worship and praise, but what do we do with this overwhelming love of God, this overwhelming grace of God? Turn back to 1 John 4, 8. First John 4, 8 says this, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. There's that phrase, God is love. Look at verse 9. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that, that we might live through him. This is love, right? I mean, it tells us right here what love is. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? Not that we loved God. It's clear we were enemies of God in Scripture. Like, he loved us despite us. He didn't look down and go, hey, Nathan, you're a lovable guy. I want to love you. I wanted nothing to do with him, and he loved me anyways. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he loved us so much that he sent his son, his one and only son, the son that he loved, to die for us. How do we respond to this? I mean, that's overwhelming, right? Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's how God has commanded us to respond. To love one another. It's simple, right? I mean, it's not easy, but it's simple. Love one another. That's God's command. He says, hey, look at what I did for you. That's what he says in this passage. Now love one another. Love one. And I want to be clear to you, the one another here is talking about within the church. Not just loving people. Not just loving other Christians either. Remember, John is is writing this letter to a local church body. It's love within a local church body. It's us, COBC, loving each other. That's how God has commanded us to respond to his amazing love, right? That's our challenge, right? That's our command to love one another. Listen, if you've been overwhelmed by the love of God this morning, as we go through the story of Abraham, then obey him. Let's love one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I am just in awe, Lord, of you. Lord, I'm in awe of the story of Abraham and his trust in you, his faith in you, Lord, and the fact that you would save Isaac when, when no one deserves to be saved, Lord. We all deserve death. And you not only saved Isaac, but you saved Abraham. You saved his family. You saved those that, have, that, that were part of the remnant in, in Israel. You saved the, those that are in the church, Lord, the true church, those that truly have faith in you, Lord. God, I'm in awe that you would send your son to die for me, for us. A a people, Lord, that has turned their backs on you, that were enemies of you, and you loved us anyways, Lord.
God, I pray that, 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 that this love, Lord, that God is love, this phrase, this idea of how you loved us, Lord, encourages us to, to get involved, to get involved in each other's lives, Lord, and actively love each other, Lord. That how we love each other, Lord, is a testimony to how you loved us, God, a sacrificial love. God, I pray that Country Oaks is known for that. Be with us, Lord. Encourage us, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to love one another. In your son's name, amen.